0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past.
1: Let's
2: begin.
3: And when we say black power, it's not to frighten anyone, but it's to reassure the black race that the feeling is there, but it must be analyzed. What does it mean? Black power is very easy. You read the dictionary, you heard of Mr. Webster. He talked about that before we were born. He said power is the ability to perform work. Power is the ability to move. It's a shove, it's a push, and for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. That's what they told me, all right? So if power is the ability to move, Black power is the ability of black people to move. Which way we go is gonna depend upon the program.
0: Some of the most celebrated black judges and legal scholars in American history, a congressman, city council members, the founders of the Black Panther Party, the mother of Kamala Harris. These are just a few of the cultural, political, business, and academic leaders who were either members of or closely associated with a group called the Afro-American Association. In the early 1960s, the Afro-American Association brought people like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali to Oakland for a series of events called Mind of the Ghetto. At the association's get-togethers, you might find people like Willie Brown, who would go on to become one of the most influential politicians in California history, or Kamala Harris's father, Don Harris, who would go on to be an eminent Stanford economist, or leading black intellectuals, people like Cedric Robinson, the author of Black Marxism. The godfather of soul himself, James Brown, was even allegedly influenced to write the paradigm-shifting anthem, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, by the leader of the Afro-American Association. And who was the leader of this group? He was a man most people have never heard of. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. His birth name was Donald Warden, although he later changed it to Khalid Al-Mansur. It was his voice, Don Warden's voice, that you just heard a minute ago at the top of this show. And for the rest of this episode, you're going to be hearing from a handful of former members of the Afro-American Association. And you'll also be hearing from librarian Dorothy Lazard, who grew up here in Oakland as the Black Power movement that Don Warden helped start was having a profound impact on the world around her. Just a quick note about chronology before we get going. The Afro-American Association was started around 1960 by a group of mostly Berkeley grad students, although there were a few SF State people also involved. Uh, Within a few years, by around 1963 or so, many of the original members had moved on, and the association's activities during this later era mostly involved students at Oakland City College, which later changed its name to Merritt College. There were also a lot of non-students just regular folks from the community also involved during these later years. I'm telling you all this now because you'll hear some conflicting dates in these interviews. Uh, The most important thing to remember is that, generally speaking, these events happened in the early to mid-1960s. And that's about all you'll be hearing from me for a while. I'm taking a step back for most of this episode, so you can hear the story of the Afro-American Association directly from the people who lived it. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. Hi,
2: I'm uh, Margot Dashiel, and I, I was born in Berkeley. Um, my grandparents were born in New Orleans, or, you know, from New Orleans. Um, my grandfather, his parents decided uh, they, they could no longer tolerate life in the south. And so my great grandfather got a job on the southern Pacific and moved out here, all of his family. He moved all his wife and, and children out to Berkeley in about 1903.
0: Let's, let's start off by, can you tell me your name, where you were born, and when you came to Oakland?
4: Name, Anne Williams. And um, I was born in Alexandria, Louisiana. Uh, my brother, mother, father came out here, migrated in, I think, we came in 1946. And we came by way of the Pacific Rail. And of course, our landing was at 16th Street Station. That was the place for the whole western region for people to come in. And then because the whole, during that time, there was the the naval shipyard uh, industrial piece that as the west was expanding, and that created a lot of jobs. And so the word got out amongst those who were leaving the South that this was a place where you could get a decent job. Not necessarily escape uh, racism (laughs) and Jim Crow. That all really still existed. I don't think my parents were under the illusion that it would all be that much better. But I think they felt like we had a a fighting chance getting out here because we were going nowhere in the South. The public housing projects did not give you options when they said move, you move. And so that was our existence. But it it served as a reminder that if you don't do good, if you do bad, that's where you're going to end up. Well, okay, we're not going to get involved in gangs, we're not going to do this and that. So our only other option was church because that's where we could be contained confined and controlled. <laughs> and so, it, it, the stricter the better. I was told that I was not, pretty much, you know, you, you're you not gonna make it. Uh, and I think they all had the same script because so many people I talk to now, they said, well, my counselor told me the same thing. You know, this my counselor, he says, well, did your mother go to college? What grade did she, I said, third? Well, what about your father? I was seven. Uh, He said, what makes you think you can go to college? So I think that that negative input pushed me even more to just having ears open to what's coming down the pike and what opportunities there are. I I became more determined. Okay, I'll show (laughs) them. And, you know, it's too bad that people have to be motivated that way, in a negative way, but anyway, it worked out.
5: Well, I'm Lee Cherry, the younger brother of Lloyd Cherry, so Lloyd, why don't you start off
3: and talk about us in Oakland?
5: Well, I'm Lloyd Cherry, and I was born in Oakland and raised in Oakland. I was born in 1942, then I, um, after when I graduated from uh, Oakland Technical High School, well, I went to Laney City College, right after high school. Uh, I was going to be an electrician. I knew Huey P. Newton of the Black Panther Party. I knew him from high school. So in 1961, uh, in 1961, I was 19 years old. And then Huey Newton got in the car that we were hanging out as teenagers Uh, hanging out at quarter pound of San Pablo. That's where the the, uh, black teenagers hung out back in the day. And uh, he got in the back of the car and he said that he was gonna be a psychiatrist and a historian. And I couldn't believe that it it, it was coming from Huey because I knew him from high school. And Huey was not in anything academic in high school. And then he said he went to meetings with some intellectuals or something. And then and then he got out of the car. But later on that summer, uh, my older brother Norvell, uh, he has passed on now, but he said, there's a little little brother around there talking in front of Old Mayor campus on, on, on Grove, used to be called Grove Street, is now called Martin Luther King. And then they arrested him and then they, they, they take him out of the car and then he's talking to this big crowd. Let's go and see what he has to say.
0: You mean Don Warden was being arrested? Yeah, he was being arrested, but
5: the police put him in the police car and, they, and then they let him go because he, he was a lawyer. So he, he would tell them that according to the law, they couldn't do what they were doing. So they would let him go and then he'd go back talking to this crowd, a mixed crowd of blacks and whites, uh, you know, students. So I went around there and we was, and, and Don was, uh, he uh, he had this University of California sweatshirt on and he was talking about a black experience, world history. He was just, he was just, they were sh- shooting questions at him and he was just giving them all kinds of information about uh, the slave trade and the, just the whole, the, the struggle of black people in the United States of America. We were just listening to the conversation and when somebody asked him in the, in the uh, crowd, what authority do you speak? And Don said, I speak with authority of the blood of my ancestors. That was, and when he said that, I'm listening and I said, man, this brother, maybe he got something to say.
3: I'm very glad to be here. And I'm glad to see that people today are concerned about the future and the direction of the race. It's very difficult for me to describe the feeling that I have. You see, those who know me know that most of my life is influenced very heavily by feeling. Uh, For some years, I suppose it came from the church, I became convinced that if the race were ever to move, it would have to come in the area of soul. We could discuss epistemology and philosophy, but somehow until it had been internalized and become a part of our emotional framework, we weren't going to move as a group. And it becomes quite clear to me today that among the elements that are moving to establish the direction of the black man, that there is in our lives and in our soul, not only the knowledge that we have garnered from school, the knowledge that we have gotten from the street, but we have done something unique in America. We have taken the brother from the pool hall with respect. Instead of telling him we have listened, We have listened to the domestic maid with respect. We did not reject her because she did not have a PhD. We listened to the musician with respect. We said, Aretha, sing respect. James Brown, sing, don't be a dropout. Then we have also gone to the universities and the schools. And we have said that what we need to establish and to support A mass movement is some knowledge of what it means to be black. We're no longer afraid to be black.
0: We're here to talk about uh the afro-american association which i suspect that most people probably haven't heard of even though they probably more than any other single organization had the biggest influence on the formation of the black panthers because they helped teach bobby Seale and huey newton the co-founders of the black panthers really um a lot about political ideology and about community organizing as well yeah. so let's just dive in at the very beginning how did you first learn about the Afro American Association, and would you agree with that assessment that they're not particularly well known, especially compared to the Black Panthers?
1: Oh, they're a complete local mystery for people, you know, under 60 or 70 years old. Uh, I grew up here and I hadn't heard of them. The way I found out about the group was uh, someone called and uh, he said that Donald Warden one of the founders of the group, had died. And uh, this was years ago, a few years ago, and I was at the reference desk at the Oakland History Center. And he said, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the leaders of this group are dying, and is there anyone who would be willing to record some of the stories and the history of this organization? And I, said, I took down his name and number, and he was someone whose brother, who was also a founding member, Um, had also died, or an early member, I won't say a founding member. But the person I talked to was uh, Reverend Lloyd Cherry. And I had an opportunity to talk in depth with him about the influence of the organization. And he was a young man just out of high school when he became involved with it in the very early 60s. So uh, that's how I found out about it. I mean, I grew up here and hadn't really known about that group.
5: When I got in in the Afro American Association, it had just evolved from the book club from University of California, Berkeley. And Don, uh, because of his background, they named him the the spokesperson. There at the meeting was a lot of college students and, and as a result of him going to the street, talking the way he talked, then a lot of brothers ancestors from the street that weren't college, they were at the meeting too. Now you had the first meeting I went to, Round V. Dellums was at the meeting, and a lot of young black attorneys, I just had, they had just graduated from Cal Berkeley and Hastings Law School and a lot of other scholars black scholars
4: and then right right about that time there was a move to include in the curriculum uh black studies so i kind of was more with that group of folk who were looking at how to include because i had gotten so much out of those study groups and when i talk about mentoring some of it was that extra push that you get from the group and you, I wouldn't call it pressure exactly, but you did not go to a study group and not be prepared. If the if the reading was W.E.B. Du Bois, you better be prepared and come in. Otherwise, the last thing you wanted to be called was a lightweight. And if you didn't articulate what W.E.B. Du Bois or Richard Wright or Baldwin was, trying to convey, you needed to get what that message was and see and people held on to that and had it guide them to go off into all those other things. You know, nobody ever asked me to do that in any <laughs> any classroom. So it was like, you know, being in school, but it was on blast because if you did not come through, you know,
0: You had to prove yourself. Do you think that's where Hugh and Bobby learned a lot of their kind of public speaking skills?
4: Oh, absolutely. I I do.
0: The Afro-American Association, how did they start? What were their goals? What's like the genesis of this organization?
1: Well, they started as a formal ASUC, that's Associated Students of UC, recognized group in early 1962. But to understand how they formed, how this particular group of people formed this particular organization, you have to kind of understand what was going on at Cal at the time. And in the, those very first few years of the 1960s, it could have been 1955. Uh, it was a very controlled, mild student environment this is still
0: the era when you would see people wearing suits at protests. Right?
1: Yes, 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 yes. And, the, and it's before, I want to say, it's before the free speech movement by a few years.
5: You see, the thing of it was, we, was, we put so much emphasis on the, what was going on in Africa with colonization and the European powers uh, subjugating those people in Africa, African people. Association was dealing with the whole of uh, what is, had happened to the African people and what was happening to African people, not only in the United States.
0: Right, like you saw those liberation struggles as connected.
2: Yeah, we saw that as connected. Not one
5: thing that was different. Yeah.
2: And then in the spring of, you know, May, so it was probably 61, the student demonstrations the sit-ins and all came to people's attention, uh, particularly the African-American graduate students. At the time, someone did a count, and they said that all in all, black students numbered 200 on the campus. That would have included African students. So we were a very small subset, those who were activist-oriented, but um, people got concerned about what was going on with the sit-ins and wanted to do some reflection, some study. And so they st- decided they would set up a study group. So these intellectual people decided on this study group and that would meet every Sunday, and someone would present the book and there would be discussion. But there was a context really set by the people coming out of Howard, where you had African-American intellectuals who had a critical view of an integrationist model. So that was threaded through all of these discussions. You know, the question of the, the assumptions about the inferiority or the non-existence of African-American culture you know was consistently challenged Mm -hmm. it was life-changing that's all I could say you know for those of us who hung around or hung in there uh, who were in the 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 social milieu because it wasn't only these book meetings but there were parties there were uh, you know, conversations that were going on over coffee it was it was very... um, it was a very invasive set of ideas, you know.
1: I think their intent from the beginning was to empower the community and by empowering the community they did it in the way that they knew how. You know, they weren't militarists, they weren't politicians, they were educated and, and that's the weapon that they took out into the community, if you could say that. And, and there was always, whether it was acknowledged or not, I think there was always a number of different approaches. Theirs was primarily educational as opposed to political. You know, I'm not trying to run for office or mm-hmm. city council or the school board or something. We just want to empower the community where they are, you know, whether it be job training or encouraging them to go to school or go to college or finish high school. That was their way. And, and it, it basically it was kind of like we our revolutionary act is their survival of the black community and the most foundational way to have that community survive is to educate them. And they seem to be kind of like, in my mind, a kind of bridge uh, organization between you know, the Martin Luther Kings, um, political older people, and then the Black Panthers. It was like feeling um, a sense
2: of being in the vanguard. You know, so we drifted away from the NAACP and to this line of thinking that you know the NAACP being integrationist oriented and this was a different a different mindset integration meaning that you were seeking to work your way in to the white world by giving up anything unique that you might have had as an african-american so there was nothing african-american that you could go in with those are things you would have to shed so learning this reality of this depth of african-american culture was very exciting and you know feeling we became evangelical about it
1: you know i just can't say enough about how important it was and how scary i want to say that it was very scary for black people to use the word black, and it seems now so mundane and everyday, and what's the big deal right now? But I remember as a ten-year-old having a conversa- kind of these kind of heated conversations with my grandmother, even though she liked James Brown. But it's like, say it loud, I'm black, and I'm proud she was a little bit horrified by that. You know, that we were called, me and my sister were calling ourselves black all of a sudden and, you know, on our birth certificates, we were Negroes.
0: And that's because she had internalized that. um...
1: Fighting that internalization of self-hate was major and it took a long time for people to come around um, out of fear, out of, uh, you know, that self-loathing, out of fear of what,
4: white people will think. I felt affirmed in, in a way that I hadn't felt before because even within our community, and particularly if you have a darker hue, you would not, know, oh, they said, well, she's cute, but she's dark. You know, it was always that butt, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And I'm talking about within my own family, because as you can see, I mean, we got lighter skinned and so forth, and so, I had to overcome that on a personal inner struggle, trying to see if I had had any value, if there was anything worthy. And all of that was, you know, more of a private struggle. But to hear someone say, oh my, even though it might've been bull, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my black queen, you know, to hear that affirming from, from
3: one of the guys. At one time when someone suggested being black, you got a little nervous and looked around and said, white people may be there, let's not talk too loud. I can remember and you can remember that to call a person black or a young lady black, you might get hit swiftly and with great force. But this fear has been replaced with another feeling. Today we are telling the black woman not that we feel that we're better than anyone, but we're saying that black power is meaningful.
5: Don, he was, he was a spokesperson. He helped young people do better academically, intellectually, inspire you even to go to college. And in fact, we, we, we had demonstrations here in Oakland association did to march from a certain from the association to the library put a lot of emphasis on library and studying hitting the book stacks uh, being studious so if you if you're a person like my brother norvell he would he couldn't he wouldn't read a a pamphlet so but when he got into the afro-american association he started studying
0: reading
2: you know the campus thing ended sometime I would say uh, in in 62 maybe that's when Don graduated law school and some others might have graduated but Don had decided that he wanted to move in a mass direction and so he um, the organization on campus really dissolved and he took it off campus because he, he wanted mass impact.
5: So we got started. My brother and myself, uh, my other brother uh, Lee, he was he was still, uh, he was in high school at that point. And then we got really involved with it. Then they had a forum meeting, they called a forum meeting, where the leaders uh, would go to the forum meeting. And that's where uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and uh, Mamadou and a lot of other uh, people that, were, that wanted to be a part of the leadership of the Afro-American Association, they would go to the forum meeting on Fridays. We, uh, uh, so Friday we wor- worked on uh, the strategy to move the Afro-American Association's uh, program forward. Then on Saturday morning, we had street rallies in the, uh, like we used to say in the anti-poverty program, the target areas of, of, of the black uh, community. We would have uh, Don or some other spokesman would, would, would uh, be talking to a crowd of black folks and the police, the white police officers be circling around. And because Don was a lawyer, uh, he said, uh, "Tell, told, uh, told the group, don't be a, be afraid. You have your rights, and he, you know, all the stuff, and the legal rights and stuff." So,
0: what neighborhoods would those street gatherings happen in?
5: Well, when one in Oakland was 98th and Eads, and the other one was 16th and Market in in, uh, in Oakland. Then we had the one in uh, Fillmore District. In Fillmore in San Francisco. And Fillmore and Ellis. And Fillmore in Ellis. And then we had one in uh, Marin City. And then we had book discussions, and we would have that on Sunday.
4: You know, you didn't have to go very far. Uh, you'd see Don Morton on the corner. And some people were, shut up already. You know, it's like... <laughs> You're too loud, you know. People just didn't really uh, want to hear it, and, and, and yet-
0: Because he was a pretty outspoken guy.
4: He was very outspoken, a little guy, but big, you know, and he had the kind of lungs that I was accustomed to because he came from the same church background. See, he was a, I mean, he, he really could have been a minister as well, and he had those kind of skills and you know it was theater and so you'd go to see Don Warden perform and he he really was good and so he would say at the rally come to the third i think it was thursday nights we would meet on Grove Street not far from the BART station in MacArthur that's where uh, it it moved to another place but so i i went to the meeting and So much of it was like home in a way because it was like Sunday school but different.
0: In this focus on black community survival, where does their prioritization of learning black history fit into that? And sharing books that you would never see in a high school or a college curriculum back then. School
1: curriculum. It wasn't in the school curriculum at all.
0: Yeah, so why did they want to focus on black history? Why was that so important to them?
1: Oh, that was essential. I think that was an essential part of their mission, to invest in everybody who went to those Monday night forums or to the street rallies, a sense of their history, black history, African history. You came from somewhere. You came from a people that were not just enslaved. There was a history long before American and Caribbean and South American slavery. And I I thought that was abundantly important because when you think about it, most people in that generation hadn't seen anybody black in their curriculum at school. No one had seen many even popular movies with black people in it. And what there was in mainstream media was negative, either negative stories or negative depictions in films and TV. You know, we're just coming in 1961, you have to remember we're just coming out of images like Beulah the Happy Maid and um, Amos and Andy, the kind of stumbling, grifter, goofy uh, depictions of black people. And of course, even before that, the images were even more negative and more uh, debasing so the association was really focused on self-knowledge building racial pride and the interesting thing that they consciously did in this organization was stop calling each other and other people negro it didn't tether black people to any place Hmm. What does Negro mean? That just means Black and Spanish. What what does that mean? Does it take into account the diaspora, the African diaspora? It doesn't really.
4: Getting into one of the tenets of the Afro-American Association was the self-pride. How do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? And all of the things that the big holes missing in our uh, history classes that, you know, only talked about, and then there were slaves. And so it inspired people to demand, well, you know, we need this as part of our regular curriculum, because what you're teaching us is that we're not even whole beings.
0: And I know that Don Warden wasn't only speaking at these kind of street corner rallies and these community centers, but he also had a radio show, right? He had a radio
1: show. K-D-I-A. Oh, KDIA? KDIA, the soul of the Bay. He talked about how you know he wanted to not go through kind of like a middleman. There wasn't this trust of the media because there was no example of the media being trustworthy to the black community. So he paid for a 30-minute segment every Sunday where he would just talk about issues that were important to the black community. They're gonna
3: be watching, they're gonna be listening, they're gonna be asking themselves, what is really going on in the black community? Burn, baby, burn! My ladies and gentlemen, 1,000 fires, 3,600 arrests, 36 deaths, people in the streets, kids in the streets, and you hear the cry all over America, and if you don't believe it, just take a little time out to listen. Burn, burn! Burn, baby, burn. Burn. These are not the cries that are coming from the civil rights leaders. These are cries that are coming from the community. And if you want to know what is going on, you don't need the Afro-American Association. You don't need the civil rights groups. Let's go to Watts. Let's look at Watts, baby. What has really occurred? You find fires burning. But what fires are burning? they burn department stores burn. the general population doesn't understand in their mind they say why would they burn a department store because the department store is good it gives jobs they don't understand what happens in the black community they have these so-called credit stores burn, baby. they get cheap cheap no good merchandise and then they get on what is called negro radio burn, and baby. they start screaming here negro, hey, negro. Come here, Negro. Burn, we got something for the Negro. Burn, 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 baby, burn. Cheap furniture at exorbitant prices. And then if you miss one payment, you miss one payment, then they wanna attach your wages burn. and repossess the furniture. And that's not the only thing. Ladies and gentlemen, what is making the people of Watts angry is the disrespect. When they take the furniture, and they attach your wages, and they cause you to lose your job, there's no remorse. There's no understanding. They say, look here, Negro. They get bad. You know how they talk to you. You better get into this store. You better get in here in a hurry. Burn, baby. Because we're not going to take any foolishness from you, here hear? Burn. You get that bill and you get it paid now. Burn, baby. Some of the brothers attempted to work out an understanding and they explained that my grandmother died or my mother died and I had to bury her and that's the reason I don't have the money. I don't want to hear all that nonsense. Get that money in here. And now the brothers said, burn this store. Burn, baby. rumors that have been going in the black community for years the brothers have gotten tired they say burn the whole store burn 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 baby burn ladies and gentlemen if you want to understand why the stores were burnt it's not because communists were using us it's because these grievances that have been occurring for years
5: I guess it's about 63 then we had the mind of the ghetto conference in uh, West Open at McClamis High School. And, and at, at that conference, and then we had uh, Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali.
0: 64. It, six, it, it happened two years in a row, right? It,
5: it, two years in a row. Now, one year, I think it was 63, the first one. And Malcolm X in 63, okay. And my brother Norvell was the moderator. And Ron Karinga was on the panel, Malcolm X was on the panel and prominent black clergy was on the panel, you know, uh, and the topic was Christianity in the black community. And it just got, it was in the uh, uh, the climate's library. We had 16 different workshops because we were covering the whole spectrum of the black experience. Now at that, uh, either 63 or 64, Bobby Seale was a comedian. He was a comedian, stand-up comedian, at one of these mind uh, uh, of, the, uh, one of the ghetto conferences.
1: I'm gonna get my little notes here because okay. I found out more about it. Uh, the Afro-American Association sponsored a conference, The Mind of the Ghetto, at McClyman's High School. I looked at the the newspaper article about it. Um, Malcolm X, Ron Karenga, who would go on, he changed his name to Milana Karenga, who was the founder of Kwanzaa. But these are the kinds of uh, thing the workshops that they had, Black business prospects, views of the domestic worker, and automation and the black worker. So, they were very kind of forward thinking. You know, I, I wouldn't have thought in the early 60s anybody was talking about automation in, in regards to the African American uh, worker. So. Yeah, in, a, in a
0: way, that makes sense because think about this is really the dawn of a lot of the deindustrialization of black sure. American cities. So, you're seeing these factories fleeing West Oakland, and of course, there's many, many factors related to why that happened, but I think part of it was the, the machines taking over for yeah, where to line up.
1: Of, of the exactly. Yeah, exactly, that yeah. happened too. They were also very kind of suspicious of mainstream political life in America because they didn't see what the benefit was ultimately for African-Americans. You know, you get a little crumb here or there between election cycles. And um, Warden talks about all these middle men. He, he considers, uh, you know, the black politicians the kind of middlemen to that political neglect that mm-hmm. African-Americans see themselves a living under pretty chronically. And so, Don Warden talks very pessimistically about voting.
0: Well, I can imagine how you can get pretty cynical after a couple hundred years of broken promises.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, he, yeah, he spoke very cynically about it, which I think is interesting because so many people in that association did try to work from the inside. People like Dellums, you know, people like Belton mm-hmm. Henderson. Was, that's
5: what I was saying about the African Association. It started from these intellectuals. Then it evolved when he went to the street with, with guys that were game bank. Huey Newton was not, see, <laughs> at that time, uh, Huey Newton in high school. Huey Newton wouldn't read a pamphlet. Uh, he wasn't an intellectual or scholar by no means but when he got in the afro-american association around these scholars and the language and the terminology that they they were using he picked that up and then he took it to brothers who were gangbangers in oakland and the language that he got from the afro-american association
0: you're talking about them as this sort of link between the kind of reformers and the revolutionaries and we've we talked about this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could be a little more specific on the influence of the Afro American Association on the the Black Panthers.
1: So um, my understanding about their relationship, they came in like so many others uh, into the forums. You know, they encountered them at street rallies. Well, they
0: were they were college students, right? At, at Merit at the students time. Students
1: at Merritt, and it was considered a very black school. It had a really strong African-American student population and um, so many of the students felt like uh, the curriculum should reflect the community. Anyway, the rallies that took place really inspired a lot of people, including Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. Those rallies were just kind of like the lure to get you into the forums. Now the forums were very charged and intellectually stimulating events and I just want to share with you some details about them which I found out. Um, Okay so on Monday evenings the association held like a 30-minute lecture on current events and the current events could be just anything, right? Then there'd be a slideshow or a speaker presentation that would Maybe run 15 to 30 minutes. And then there'd be an hour lecture on the topic of some aspect of black history. And that started to cover archaeology, science, technology, banking, engineering, economics, media. And, you know, you'd be assigned readings. And I've heard the story that, you know, if Huey didn't do his reading, so it's like, you can't come back until you do the reading. I
2: remember Don Hopkins telling me that he really cherished Huey. He said, I really loved Huey. He was at one of the meetings, and he was leading a discussion on existentialism. And Huey said something, and and Don said, you just, you are not prepared. You are just not prepared. And he said the next time he came, he was prepared.
1: Interesting thing about those forums, those Friday night forums, is there would be like black professionals there, you know, dentists, doctors, whatever. And then there'd be, you know, high school kids and their parents, and people were really intrigued by Someone putting a, a black person in the frame of important topics like history or economics or what does that mean to me, economics? You know, I hear about it on the news maybe, but but if you make it relevant to me, I'm going to listen. I'm going to uh, want to learn more. They just wanted to let people know you can have a better life if you educate yourself about the things that are really at the root of, of the suppression that we feel mm-hmm. in, in, this, in this country or in this city. The Oakland police were bad, <laughs> to put it in one simple word. Um, unemployment was bad in the black community at the time. But who was addressing people's hopes and aspirations? And how do you go about addressing your own hopes and aspirations? How do you have racial pride enough to, you know, get dressed up and put on a suit and tie or a clean shirt and a tie if you don't have a full suit and go and try to get a job? And so that sense of... Um, Racial pride is essential. You uh, mentioned that earlier. Uh, That was huge because, you know, everything black at that time was considered bad or in deficit.
2: I've been trying to put my finger on it because the Panthers, ideologically, were polar opposite from Don. Don was, was entrepreneurial in his orientation you know, it was about establishing black businesses, uh, but the idea that there was validity in this community, in this history, um, that there was this history of struggle that needed to be illuminated in slave revolts and so forth, I think that was very compelling. So, The Panthers taking a political aim was a a whole different trajectory, but the uh, the idea of cohesion around political issues, around struggle, around a history that uh, showed you were not just taking it, you were not just passive in the face of oppression, I think was very significant.
4: Well, I think of the environment in which we uh, developed as young people added fuel to the thought of self-defense because the the OPD had just where well, they were just rampant and what they were doing to you know the man on the street and planting drugs and all of that and beating beatdowns. So Huey
1: Newton and Bobby Seale kind of moved away from the more cerebral work that was going on in the afro-american association and they wanted to address the more immediate and pressing issues of police brutality incarceration of uh, young african-american primarily men at that time and protecting the community from from all of those abuses legal and physical and I think underpinning that was what they learned at the Afro-American Association.
0: Yeah, no, my my understanding is essentially that Huey felt like it was time for action. Yeah. And that the, the Afro-American Association was more about talking things through. And he really wanted to kind of physically take it to the streets and start these uh, yeah. you know, neighborhood patrols and things like
4: neighborhood that. Neighborhood patrols, protecting people. There was no big blowout or a long night discussion about it I think that they just kind of drifted and they had a different kind of uh, if, if you knew them both they had a different kind of energy than the so-called older wiser men you know and it was m- more of a physical kind of uh, fire in the belly type energy mm-hmm.
0: Of the afro-american association did it ever like officially shut down or did it just kind of stop meeting or what happened it, with the, it, the it sort of
5: faded out yeah. it, it faded out but the ideas still lives on today it lives in the hearts of individuals so all of that is the outgrowth of a lot of things black lives matter came out of oakland but it came from individuals who at one time been ex- exposed to black concepts in the african diaspora here in oakland so their children now are taking it to another level
2: Yeah, I think that it had um, legs, as they say. One of them was the Black Panther Party, which had major impact. Without the association, there wouldn't have been a Black Panther Party. The other is the Dellums campaign. I don't think we would have had a Dellums candidacy without it. And I say that because there were key people in the association that were friends with Ron. And uh, when Ron then was asked to run for city council, these were people who then became part of his campaign. And Don Hopkins uh, became part of his congressional campaign and ran his office for 20 or 30 years. There was that, and then now we get the Kamala Harris. Her mother, primarily, I would say, her mother's commitment, her mother's strong affiliation with these key people who had come out of the association of lifelong friendships. Yeah. And so one of them I'm told said, you are going to Howard. They told her that they had been at Howard and she was looking at where she could go and said, you are going to Howard. This is one of her mother's good friends who was in the, had been in the association. This was Mary Lewis. But that was key too. That, you know, her identity as an African American woman was cemented in this community of the Labrie family and other people in her mother's circle. You would not be able to run with that part of your identity if you didn't feel it, if you didn't identify as an African American person, it would be very hard to garner that part of the constituency.
1: Her parents met in one of the meetings of the Afro American Association, and they bonded with each other. But met a lot of people who would become their friends and their support network. And and you know when Kamala and her sister were born. Uh, some of these people took care of them and and were their babysitters and provided childcare for the family, but it was also an international. Uh, Kamala's mother was an Indian grad student who would go on to become you know a, a cancer researcher, but uh, at the time she was welcomed into you know this uh, South Indian woman. Uh she was welcomed into this group of african Americans who were welcoming other people in uh, the African diaspora, but also other people of color who were also interested in learning more about colonialism and its effect and so it seems kind of natural that they would bond together, this Jamaican immigrant and this Indian immigrant. And it's like, where do we find our place here at this predominantly white university?
2: She was certainly doing the thinking and the study. You know, she was doing the reading. And one time there was a meeting in, at, at Bayview, Hunter's Point, in the community center, and there was Shyamala. I don't know how she got there, but she was sitting there with her nutrition textbook. And, you know, in case there was a break, she would be studying. But she, you know, she met, she was interested in absorbing these ideas and wanting
4: to get into this community. Shyamala, I loved her, because she was bold in her way. She still had her traditional uh, dress. I was really more into that as a woman amongst men who were all very dominant and somewhat controlling that she stood her ground. And that was appealing to me because I was all so shy and reserved and really didn't feel like I had much to contribute. But I said, that's how I want to be, you know, and still be feminine, whatever that means. But uh, at the same time, command respect. And she was able to do that. And much, much later, and she didn't even know it. I ran into Kamala one day and I told her at Kamala's mother's apartment at the lake. And so who comes up the elevator with me? Kamala and her her sister. And so I, I told her, I told Kamala, I said, oh, I'm a friend of your mother's. And um, I've been to many meetings at her place, and I said, you know, I uh, I happened to name my niece, Shyamala, after your mother, and so she and her, she and her sisters, like, oh, you know, they would, we want to meet her.
3: Power doesn't tell you that there's a program black power tells you we're going to move. It's a declaration of faith But the direction that we move depends on us. It means we decide. Can you dig it? That's why we're talking together That's why we're bringing every element together so that we can sit down and talk and say brother What do you really want? We want this conference when it ends to have the black woman with more strength than she's ever had in her life. In
2: 1983, uh, we, my brother and I started a greeting card company called Frederick Douglass Designs, yeah. And it was an African-American themed set of greeting cards, Christmas and seasonal cards. You know, we did beautiful things. We would contract with artists to, to do things, and usually I would write the verse, and um, we had sales across the country to African-American bookstores and to nonprofits. You know, Boy Scout troops and churches and what have you would sell them as fundraisers.
0: What kind of response did you hear from people about seeing black faces on greeting cards
2: yeah, you know, it was so inspiring to people and particularly then in the 80s where there were very few. Hallmark hadn't caught on. They hadn't, you know, ventured out at the time. And so uh, newspapers and, and radio stations and all kinds of media would carry stories and, and that's how we would also get business. Uh, you know, it was it was really quite interesting and exciting. Once Hallmark got into the game it became much more challenging.
5: Well I formed that uh, Black Business Brain Trust. I came out of college had a degree in business and and electronics so I had a double major so and I was only one in my division that was black out of San Jose State and I lived in like Lee said it was only 99 blacks on the campus of 21,000 then and my thinking was to take all the theoretical knowledge you got from the college campus and empower economically the black community through business to you know create their own business to put each other to work and I I was placing uh, professional uh, blacks who were just graduating from uh, college in corporate America throughout San Francisco so just I I loved it you know I just to help people who've just been totally disenfranchised to to gain skills and motivate them give them some orientation about the workplace and oh man this is what I enjoy
4: being one of the first black RNs to hit pill hill and never got the respect and You know, tried, went into, like I said, into ICU. I opened up the coronary care unit uh, there and um, did emergency care. All of the real high stress areas to prove, yeah, I can do this. Doctors would still come to me and say, oh, would you give these orders to the nurse? I got a great big old hat on and a pin that says RN. It's like... And then the patient's like, oh no, you're not giving me no blood. Mm -mm, No, no, go get the white nurse. So, come on. And then the other thing that kind of set me on, it's the experiences that my early involvement with the political scene, the civil rights and all of that informed so many other things that happened in my life because uh, Huey Newton's mother, I was taken care of she had had some heart problems something that gave her pain
0: when what what time frame was this? so this
4: would have been if we could narrow down when Huey got back from Cuba because he didn't Mm -hmm. he didn't go to Cuba with us like he was supposed to (laughs) so uh, he went later remember when he had to go into exile
0: and that was like in the mid 70s or something like that
4: yeah so I was at Peralta Hospital and so Huey's mother came and she was on my floor and I was in charge that, that evening and Huey had just arrived back from exile. So he gets off the elevator with this entourage and he looked at me and he said, Ann, well that was it. That word got out all over the hospital. We knew she was radical, because, see, I didn't bring that part of my life to, you know, I I just didn't. Uh, It wasn't necessary, but I didn't let them mess around with my performance evaluation either, because that's another weapon that they would use, right? I would stand up. And um, so prior to that, I had had a conference with my supervisor because one of the nurses that I work with, I was giving her a report, and I said, Mrs. Newton has had a rough day. She is going to need something for pain because, and the nurse, she just stopped me. I'm not giving her anything for pain. Do you know who her son is? And I said, yeah, I know where her son is. So what does that have to do with her asking for pain? Well, she's not going to have it on my shift. I'm not giving it to her. And I said, "Do you mean tell me you would rather do harm? You took an oath." So we did this back and forth. And I said, "Well, she's on my shift tonight, and uh, you know, I'll take care of it." And so that got so that had just gotten out. And then when Huey got off the elevator, <laughs> they had they wrote me off after that. What I'm
1: learning through doing the research for the African on the African American Association is. It comes in many different forms. You know, liberation comes in many different forms. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes what liberates you is a gun. Sometimes what liberates you is a vote, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes what liberates you is a song, you know? For people in my generation, having James Brown say say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Whereas, you know, the year before we were like, you better not call me black, I'll punch you in the face, you know, wow. uh, because it had been so demonized. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they, if they hadn't done anything else, this association gave us such a big gift to uh, center black life, uh, African aesthetic, the word black. That's a profound gift to society.
0: I'm just wondering, since I'm asking about your education career now, if there's anything you can say about how your, you know, your college years and your association with the Afro-American Association influenced your career trajectory in that way? It had
2: everything to do with it. Everything to do with it. Um, The idea of cultural impact, you know, the idea of cultural imagery inspiring motivating people is is what i drew from the association i would never have gone in that direction had it not been for that full force orientation that i got through the association
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. If you want to know more about the Afro-American Association, one of my guests from this episode, Dorothy Lazard, wrote a really great essay about them for the Oakland Public Library. I'll link to that at my site, eastbayyesterday.com. Again, there's not very much about the association out there. But one of the few books to mention them is called *Living for the City* by Donna Murch. It's a great read, and I'll link to that as well. Big thanks to my guests this episode. Besides Dorothy, who is my favorite librarian, of course, longtime listeners already know that. Uh, you also heard from Loy and Lee Cherry, Anne Williams, and Margot DeShiel. And I also want to give a shout out to Alternate Cook. Mark Torres and Sean Dellis at the Pacifica Radio Archives, and Laura Privis from KPFA Radio. As always, this episode would not have been possible without my Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to everyone who's donating to keep the show alive. If anybody else out there wants to support my ability to keep making new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com and hit that donate link at the top of the page. Another way to support this show is by coming out to my historical boat tours of the bay. Uh, those tours always sell out, and the best way to find out uh, when the tickets go on sale is to sign up for my newsletter. Again, you can find it all at eastbayyesterday.com. And if you can't afford support, but you still want to show some love, help spread the word about East Bay Yesterday. You know, it's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that. Please tag me uh, if you if you spread the word about the show. That would be awesome, and I'd really appreciate it. The music for this episode came from Anatech, and uh, that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.